Louisville Mail in Rupp Arena to determine who would wear the Kentucky boys basketball crown. And Lafayette won the game, 54-49. to And the win over Mayo was considered to be a bit of an upset in some people's minds. But one exuberant player who'd made a significant contribution to Lafayette's win climbed on the top of the scorer's table after the game and shouted proudly, We shocked the world! Morgerson and I still laugh about that player's proclamation. I mean, you and I know that high school basketball in Kentucky is a pretty big deal. But was that victory worthy of global acclaim? (laughs) Did they honestly shock the world? Were people in Dubai, in Greece, in Malaysia, when the score was on the front page of the news feed, were they shocked? I'm not so sure this victory was worthy of this young man's claim. We've sung a lot about the word worthy this morning, and I want you to think about it. I mean, what are are you honestly worthy to receive? What are you worthy to be called? What are you worthy to proclaim about yourself? As I was thinking about uh, this introduction for this morning, I remembered a speech that some celebrity gave when they thanked themselves, but I couldn't remember who it was, so I googled, I want to thank myself. And up pops a clip from a Hollywood star dedication for Snoop Dogg. <laughs> and at the end of his thank yous, here's what he said. I wrote it down exactly the way he said it. He said, finally, I'd like to thank me. I want to thank me for all this hard work. I want to thank me for never quitting. I want to thank me for always being a giver and trying to do more right than wrong. I'd like to thank me for being me at all times. Well, that's a guy who truly believes he is worthy, so he thinks himself. An important trait in life is to be able to accurately assess your worth. We need people encouraging us, believing in us, letting us know that we're important, and we need people letting us know we're, we're getting a little too full of ourselves. When we claim to have shocked the world, and really only shocked maybe 20,000 people at most, Someone needs to let us know we may not be in touch with reality. One of my favorite stories, which I've shared a few times before, uh, about being in touch with who you are, it comes from one of our presidential families, the Taft family. Some of you guys may have known this story, but the Taft family was evidently good at at, um, pushing their children to cut their own swath to find a specialty of which to be proud. When Martha Taft was in elementary school in Cincinnati, she was to introduce herself, and she said... My name is Martha Bowers Taft. My great-grandfather was president of the United States. My grandfather was a United States senator. My daddy is ambassador to Ireland, and I am a brownie. (laughs) That's awesome. Martha Bowers Taft was certainly worthy of that self-introduction. But what are you honestly worthy to receive, to be called, to proclaim about yourself? Perhaps the only person ever to be worthy, truly worthy, is Jesus. He's the only one who can say, I'd like to thank myself, though he never did say that. He's worthy of any acclaim, any prestige. He's worthy of every title, every name, every claim which honors him. I believe Jesus is worthy, worthy to listen to, worthy to follow, worthy to worship. He wasn't too full of himself, making claims that were exaggerated, nor did he play down his hero status. He knew who he was. He knew what he had to do. He knew why he was here. And he genuinely shocked the world. 
This morning, I want to take a look at one of my favorite chapters in the Bible. It's in Revelation 5. Uh, in Revelation, the Lord is giving John a behind-the-scenes look at what happens, what's going on in heaven. And the first place his tour takes us is into the throne room. And we see the camera zoom in on the throne, a representation of power and authority. When we see a throne, we're supposed to feel safe. We're supposed to feel secure. Throne rooms aren't full of panic and worry because of what's going on out in the countryside. The throne room represents order and confidence and knowledge and power. Early in my childhood, I didn't have a throne, but I was presented with a crown that I want you guys to know about in second grade. I was voted to be the King of Clark, my elementary school, and let's just say I peaked early. At the fall festival, people voted by putting change in a jar with my picture on it. And my jar had the most money in it at the end of the night. Arlene Eastburn was queen. And I was given a paper crown, and I ruled mightily until bedtime. And as I think back, and it does seem a little strange, the Daily Journal would send a reporter to Clark Elementary Fall Festival to take a picture of the newly elected king and queen, but it was an extremely slow news cycle. So here we are in the paper. In the revelation given to John, the cameras don't focus on the throne for long, but they are quick to zoom in a little closer, and their object in their lens is a scroll. And you can tell there's writing on both sides of the scroll, implying the scroll is overflowing with a certain message, a message that's hard to contain, and we can see the scroll is sealed with seven seals. The seal was placed on the scroll to ensure that only someone with top security clearance opens and reads it, only someone who is worthy. Now the question is, what does this scroll represent? Maybe the scroll includes the name of all those who are saved. Maybe the scroll is a revelation of coming events. A more likely possibility is that this scroll describes God's plan for saving man and his purpose for creation. You see, the Christians at this point in history were getting drilled, um, persecuted, executed for their faith. In the years immediately following Jesus' resurrection and ascension, the church suffered severe opposition and persecution by both the local synagogue leaders as well as the Gentile authorities. In the late 60s, Nero persecuted the church in Rome. Peter and Paul were both killed. Thirty years later, a persecution arose under Domitian, and John was a primary target. Tertullian, a historian of those times, writes in one of his books that John was thrown into a cauldron of boiling oil but suffered no negative effects. That may or may not have happened. But we do know that Domitian had him banned to the island of Patmos in the late 90s, where he wrote down this revelation that we're reading today. With so much violence, so many atrocities, such an abundance of suffering, Christ's followers wanted to know. They, they wanted some answers. They wanted hope. They wanted to know, are we clinging to a sinking ship? And deep down inside, they may have wanted vindication. So John sees this scroll and realizes what message it contains. And he he wants to know. He needs to know. And when he realizes that no one is worthy to open it, well, let's take a look at his response in verse 1. Then I saw on the the right hand of him who sat on the throne a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, Who is worthy to break the seals and open the scroll? But no one 
in heaven or on earth or under the earth could open the scroll or even look inside it. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or look inside. John realizes the answers to questions people have been asking since the beginning of time are right there in front of him, yet it's untouchable, unattainable. And John realizes that if no one is found worthy, the hopeless condition of this present world would continue indefinitely. The problem of war, conflict between humans, going all the way way back to Cain and Abel, the problem of crime and greed and prejudice and injustice. I mean, how many things can you think of right now that have happened in our world that you simply don't understand? And the list is long, isn't it? Why would someone fly a plane into a building? Why would someone drop bombs on hospitals, on neighborhoods, on schools? Why do people do terrible things to children? Why would a teenager have a gun and take it to a school? Why does violence seem so common right now? And how about things that seem unfair and unnecessary and underhanded and ungodly? You ever wonder how God's going to straighten out this mess that we've made? The answers to life's biggest questions are right there, right in front of John, right in that scroll. But those seals can't be broken by just anyone. In fact, John believes no one is worthy to break those seals and open the scroll, and that's why he sobs. He weeps. He so desperately wants to understand. He wants his questions answered. He wants to know if the good guys really do win in the end. And John wants to know if the sacrifice, if the suffering, and even if death will be worth it. And don't you and I want to know those same things? Don't you want to know that your life as a disciple is going to be worth it? Don't you want to know that the bad stuff that's happened in life will somehow make sense, or at least will be set right? Don't you want to know, especially when you're in the middle of a dark time and there seems to be not even a hint of light coming your way, that God is on your side? We get so caught up in the experience, in the emotion of wanting to know, of of feelings of injustice and of pain and feelings of unfairness. We focus so much on finding an answer that we miss what John missed. In John's behind-the-scenes vision into heaven, he first sees the throne, and then he's consumed with the scroll and his contents, and he's so emotionally wiped out that he doesn't look any further. He doesn't look around the room. John hasn't noticed the main character on the scene. He's so focused on his pain and his desire to know that he missed the main point. Verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, Don't weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then, John writes, then I saw a lamb, looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. He had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He came and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he had taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the lamb. Each one had a harp and they were holding golden bowls of incense, which are the prayers of the saints. And they sang a new song. You are worthy to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your blood, you purchased men for God from every tribe and language and people and nation. You have made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God, and they will reign on the earth. Did you see where the lamb was? Standing 
in the center of the throne. Now, how could John have missed him? Here's a lamb that looks like he's been in a war. It looks like he's been to hell and back. He has four creatures and the elders around him. The lamb has seven horns representing a fullness of power and he has seven eyes representing full discernment. How could John miss that? How could he have not seen the lamb? I think we know. I think we know how he could have missed the lamb because we're just like John. We fear and we worry for the same reasons. We want answers and we become angry or we feel hopeless or we may just sit down and cry. We miss the main character too because we get so focused on our right to know, our right to be happy, our right to see vindication handed out, to, to be treated fairly. We, we get so focused on our right to have an explanation for everything, for life to go smoothly. We're so focused on our right to have answers that we miss the source, the truth, the core of what life here and forever is all about. We miss the main character who's standing at the center of the throne. I don't know how long John wept or if he would have ever stopped without the help of someone in the throne room beside him. But someone gives him a nudge and says, you don't need to be so upset and so out of sorts. Look, over there stands the Lion of Judah. He is worthy. He is worthy to open the scroll. And suddenly John becomes aware of the lamb. And the text says, then I saw a lamb. And John realizes that Jesus' death on the cross puts every question and every right and every injustice and every pain in the proper perspective. John realizes Jesus' death on the cross and resurrection earns the right for the Lamb to break the seals and open the scroll, revealing God's plan for us and God's answers to our questions. And John realizes Jesus' sacrifice has the power to make everything new. How often have you come to church with a brokenness? or an anxious heart? And what is it you're looking for in those moments? When I feel that way, I, I want answers. I don't just want sympathy. I don't want to simply be understood. I expect uh, and maybe even demand answers. And I may even think that's my right. I want the scroll to be opened and unrolled and read. I want to know God's grace, and I want that grace to be affirmed by his word in the situations I'm struggling with. That affirmation may come in a hug. It may come in a conversation or through a prayer, maybe a song or a particular scripture. It might be in a sermon or even in the silence of communion. I want to know God's got this. He is not shocked. He is not appalled. He's not overwhelmed. He is not unable Every day we go through life making a living, raising a family, developing friendships, managing people, and we make dozens of decisions, dozens of decisions every day. And who can make all those decisions perfectly? Who can go through a day without inadvertently offending someone? Who can go through even one day being the epitome of patience? Who can be sure their motives are 100% pure? Or have you realized that evil permeates the human condition? It's much easier to do wrong than it is to do right at times. In fact, too often that's true for us. And if it were not for the lamb, John spots at the center of the throne, the lamb that makes a relationship with God possible, we would all be doomed. Each one of us is as bad off as we could be. 
if not for the lamb on the throne. We crawl, we, crawl, we, we crawl out of our bed and into the morning knowing that acceptance by our creator is not based on achievement or perfection or wealth or success. It's based on the love and the action of the Lamb of God, the choices this Lamb makes. It's the Lamb of God who brings sanity to life and makes us brave enough to rise from failure and try again. It's the Lamb of God who gives us courage to keep hoping when the situation we're looking at is pretty dim. It's the Lamb of God who gives us insight beyond the here and now to a time when the scroll will be opened and read. The Lamb of God is the core of our faith in the real world. Some people choose to deal with stuff they face every day with little interest or concern about what's going on in heaven. We're concerned about and distracted by the stress level in our lives. We're concerned about keeping our marriage together and guiding our kids down the best path. We're concerned about how to be kind to the person who's just fired us or how to be kind to the person we're about to. We're concerned about paying the mortgage. We're concerned about health care expenses and loans and college tuition. We're concerned about real-world stuff. And the decision to ignore the activities in heaven, to ignore what's happening in this behind-the-scenes vision of heaven in Revelation 5, the choice to not think about these realities results in a faith that's weaker and more insufficient than it needs to be when it comes to dealing with all of that real-world stuff. What we experience daily can only be processed and addressed as we begin to learn what it means to understand and know God. Knowing this God who has a plan for our lives leads us to possessing a faith to make a difference in this world. I'd like you to listen to a clip from a sermon by the late S.M. Lockridge. It's one that we've shown before. Uh, This contains a powerful message. Every time I watch it, it's encouraging. And I believe it will be inspiring for you too. In fact, it may help you get through the week. Lockridge does his best to describe his king and, and he challenges us with the question, do you know him? Let's turn that on. The Bible says my king is the king of the Jews. He's the king of Israel. He's the king of righteousness. He's the king of the ages. He's the king of heaven. He's the king of glory. He's the king of kings. And he's the Lord of lords. That's my king. I wonder, do you know him? My king is a sovereign king. No means of measure can define his limitless love. He's enduringly strong. He's entirely sincere. He's eternally steadfast. He's immortally graceful. He's imperially powerful. He's impartially merciful. Do you know him? He's the greatest phenomenon that has ever crossed the horizon of this world. He's God's son. He's a sinner's savior. He's the centerpiece of civilization. He's unparalleled. He's unprecedented. He is the loftiest idea in literature. He's the highest personality in philosophy. He's the fundamental doctrine of true theology. He's the only one qualified to be an all-sufficient savior. I wonder if you know him today. He supplies strength for the weak. He's available for the tempted and the tried. He sympathizes and he saves. He strengthens and sustains. He guards and he guides. He heals the sick. 
He cleanses the lepers. He forgives sinners. He discharges debtors. He delivers the captive. He defends the feeble. He blesses the young. He serves the unfortunate. He regards the aged. He rewards the diligent, and he beautifies the meek. I wonder if you know him. He's the key to knowledge. He's the wellspring of wisdom. He's the doorway of deliverance. He's the pathway of peace. He's the roadway of righteousness. He's the highway of holiness. He's the gateway of glory. Do you know him? Well, his life is matchless. His goodness is limitless. His mercy is everlasting. His love never changes. His word is enough. His grace is sufficient. His reign is righteous. And his yoke is easy. And his burden is lighter. I wish I could describe him to you. Yes, he's indescribable. He's incomprehensible. He's invincible. He's irresistible. You can't get him out of your mind. You can't, you can't get him off of your hand. You can't outlive him, and you can't live without him. Well, the Pharisees couldn't stand him, but they found out they couldn't stop him. Pilate couldn't find any fault in him. Herod couldn't kill him. Death couldn't handle him, and the grave couldn't hold him. Yeah! That's my king. That's my king. Amen. The name of God is worthy. Worthy to open the scroll so you can receive the answers to questions that perplex you. Answers to doubts that plague you. Answers to fears that paralyze you. And I want to echo Lockridge's challenge to question, do you know him? In verse 11, we'll wrap this up. Then I looked and heard the voice of many angels, numbering thousands upon thousands, and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. In a loud voice, they sang, Worthy is the Lamb who was slain, to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. And then I heard every creature in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them singing, To him who sits on the throne and unto the Lamb, be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. And the four living creatures said, Amen, and the elders fell down and worshipped. When we leave here today, I hope these words echo in your mind. Praise, honor, glory, power, wisdom, wealth, strength. Those words remind us of who's in charge of the universe when we're tempted to doubt. They remind us of who's on the throne. They remind us of who has the authority when we're beaten up. They remind us of who's in charge of the universe when we're stressed out. They remind us of who's in charge of the universe when we're worried about our children, wondering how to pay the bills. The reality of Revelation 5 can fuel a real-world faith that makes a genuine difference in the stuff that we face every day. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. Let's say that together. Worthy is the lamb that was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and praise. We're going to sing a new song, I sing a song now entitled The Lamb of God. And this may be the most important moment of your week because you have the opportunity to invite the realities of heaven into your world 
So the worthy Lamb of God can make a, di- can make a difference. He can help you get through another week. So I invite you to get on the journey to get to know him. Let's stand and sing.